Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. It is our privilege to have with us today Evangelist Ron DeGard, as I mentioned. Brother DeGard is with us for this week with the Academy, and we'll be speaking to our young people on many times and look forward to that. Brother DeGard has been with us before for meetings and appreciate so much his heart for the Lord, his practicality in preaching. Uh, he's been in evangelism for 22 years. He's based out of Bible Baptist Church in Matthews, North Carolina. A good friend of mine, Ron Allen, is a pastor there. And, appreciated Ron's ministry through the years, known him since college, and it's a delight to have somebody who's connected with that ministry here. But uh, His heart for young people is evident. He has his own children. His family is not with him for this trip, Uh, but we were so glad that he was available as we were talking who would be able to come and really minister to the hearts of our, our young people but also minister to us today. So looking forward to Ron opening God's Word. Trust that you have a heart that is prepared for it. Brother Ron? 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is good to be with you again as we uh, look out, see so many familiar faces and friends we've been able to make uh, throughout the years. And uh, just so glad uh, to be able to be here today. Good to see some uh, new college students here as well. I had a chance to talk with uh, some of you and uh, glad uh, you're here. And you may be here in fear and trepidation getting ready to start a semester. And uh, but you guys are in a great place. Looking forward to spending time with the, uh, with the young people uh, at TCA this week. And just, uh, just been praying that God would give us just a, just a wonderful time, wonderful time together. Uh, just something new for our family. Uh, we traveled in evangelism the last... Uh, uh, 22 years, we lived in a trailer. We lived in a in a parking lot uh, of churches all over all over the U.S. And just last month, we purchased our first home, our first house. There was a lot of work that needed to be done, and we spent all month fixing it up. And I've decided I'm selling it, and moving back to the RV. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> and uh, you know, welcome to home ownership, right? And so, uh, well, we just moved in Thursday, so just in enough time for me to spend a couple nights, and then I leave again, and uh, I'll be gone. But uh, we're uh, I'm sorry, my family could not be here. They're kind of spread out, and uh, so we have two in college, and then uh, we're the two girls are in college, and now we have two. Uh, high school boys in in the trailer with us. So now the trailer will be a man cave, a mobile man cave. And uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So we're looking forward to that. Well, if if you have your Bible, would you look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3? Just want to look at a passage of scripture this morning. And I trust it'll be a help and a blessing to you. Would you look at, at verse number 15? And that from a child, and that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, would you help us to understand the words that we have just read? And Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts during this time. Father, would you do your perfect work in the time that we have? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was 1989 in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. A 29-year-old financial analyst named Jeff walked into a flea market accompanied by his wife. 
And they did what most couples usually do. They separated for a few moments. And uh, the wife was looking at things of interest to her. The man was looking at things of interest to him. Maybe they had some hunting rifles or some power tools or whatever. And, and a few minutes later, the wife thought, well, I probably should find my husband, Jeff. And so she was walking through that flea market trying to find him. And she found him standing before and rather captivated by a dilapidated, nasty, ugly old painting. Jeff's wife walked up, took one look at the desire in Jeff's eyes, realized that Jeff wanted to buy the painting, and she says, man, don't even think about it. That painting is ugly. Now, Jeff later said he wanted to buy it for the frame. Have you ever done that? You know, custom framing is, you know, it could, could cost a lot. And he had something that would kind of fit in that. And he really liked the frame. He didn't care about the painting. He really wanted to buy it for the frame. And, but it's obvious he wanted to buy it. And, uh, and so he and his wife had their discussion for the next few moments. And they went back and forth. Finally, the wife capitulated. She says, you know what? Fine. If you can buy it for under five bucks, you can have it hoping to set a very high price limit for that painting and thereby keeping it out of their home. Well, she walked out of the flea market got in the, and got in the car out in the parking lot. Well, several minutes later, Jeff walked out of that flea market with guess what underneath his arm? That ugly painting. He put it into the back seat. He got it in the front seat. He started the car. He didn't even turn his head to speak to his wife. He gave, he just kind of shifted his eyes and gave that little husbandly smirk, you know, that his husbands are so famous for, and said, I got it for $350. <laughs> she said, listen, man, there is no place where that thing is going other than in your office. And Jeff thought, you know, I guess it's fair. It's my ugly painting. It's my ugly office. I guess the two go together. So he worked out of their home, and so he took, they got home, and he took the painting up to his office, got the necessary things he needed to hang the painting. And as he was getting ready to hang the painting before he swapped the frame out, uh, there was a corner of the painting that had kind of curled up and had tucked itself in the frame. You know, sometimes paper, when it becomes old, it turns yellow and brittle. That's exactly what happened to the corner of this uh, painting. And it untucked itself from the corner of the, of the frame, and so he tried to tuck it back in, and it popped back out. And when it popped back out, he could tell that there was some writing on a different layer of the canvas, as it were. Kind of peeled it back a little bit, <coughs> and there was definitely some writing there. He couldn't tell what it was, and he thought, you know what? I paid three fifty for this thing. I might as well just peel it off, find out what's underneath, and then take Elmer's glue and paste this thing back on. That's exactly what he does. He, he peels off the outer layer of the painting and underneath that painting was an original handwritten certified copy of the Declaration of Independence. Jeff sold it for $2.8 million. You think he gave any of the money to his wife? <laughs> I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. <laughs> Later, whoever bought it sold it for uh, $9.8 million. It's on a cruise ship in the Bahamas somewhere. But can you imagine the guy at the flea market watching the 11 o'clock news tonight that sold that painting, realizing I could have been a millionaire and I sold it for three fifty? He had no clue as to the incredible wealth of that painting or he wouldn't have sold it for three fifty. Really, Jeff's wife had no discernment, really, how could she? As to the incredible value of that painting, or she wouldn't have put a price limit of $5 on it. Really, as Jeff came home and he hung the painting on the wall, he had no clue of the incredible treasure that was right underneath his nose. 
And friend, as I've traveled this country almost for a quarter of a century, preaching in churches all over America, you know, we, we find all over the world, really, we find that same scenario spiritually replayed out over and over again by God's people. Friend, do you realize you have something sitting in your laps this morning called the Word of God that David said, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. He said in Psalm 119, I rejoice in thy word as one that findeth great spoil or literally great treasure. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, in Proverbs he said that the wisdom contained in God's word, its price is far above rubies. Listen, David understood that there was something, that there was a, a well to this book that was far greater than anything we could ever own in this planet. Solomon understood there was an incredible wealth to this book, and so did the Apostle Paul, because it is now this truth, the wealth of God's Word he is communicating to a young, timid preacher named Timothy. Timothy pastored at Ephesus. Second Timothy is the last letter Paul ever wrote. He's writing from his second in prison, and he's writing from the Mamertine prison. In fact, you could go to Rome today and you can go to one of the entrances of the Mamertine prison that would be similar to that of a manhole cover and you would pick that up and what they would do is they would drop 30 to 40 prisoners down in this old well or this old cistern and they would, they would fill it up with prisoners when they wanted to execute them. They would, they would pull a lever and it would force feed with the gravity all the sewage of Rome into that compartment, drowning horrifically those 30 to 40 prisoners. They would pull another lever using the gravity. It would clear out all the bodies and all the sewage. They would shut that back up again. They would repeat as desired or as necessary. This is where Paul was writing from, the Mamertine prison. That was just a part of it. Timothy is in his early 30s, probably 32, 33. Paul is probably somewhere 66, 67 years of age. And Paul's coming to the end of his life and he realizes that his time may be short. That's why in chapter four, he said, be diligent to come to me quickly. He probably realized he wasn't gonna make it much longer. And there was a persecution that was upon the church and, and everywhere that they looked, the people were ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, or ashamed of the Lord. They were ashamed of the testimony of Paul, of the servant of the Lord. And, and they were turning their back on God and on the gospel. That's why in every chapter in 2 Timothy, he calls people out by name and he names them. And there was a crisis that was going on in the church, but yet it was in this climate that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul takes some time to encourage Timothy about the wealth of God's Word. If someone were to uh, ask you to give me some verses to prove the veracity of the Bible, probably your mind would run to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, and rightfully so. That's the proof text of the Bible on the Bible, but I want you to see that this whole chapter is connected to this idea of the wealth of God's Word. This morning, I want to show you really three reasons why the Word of God is so valuable, why you can't go a day without it. Really three reasons why the Word of God is so valuable, that you ought to read it every day without miss, that you ought to study it every day without miss, that you ought to meditate on it every day without miss. There's one reason in verse 15, one in verse 16, and one in verse 17. But would you run back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1? Would you see how Paul begins this chapter? Notice he says this, but know this. The word know means to realize or to recognize. 
In other words, Paul's saying, Timothy, if you're going to make it in this difficult climate where there is persecution upon the church, if you're going to have God's hand upon your life, there are some things you've got to know, you've got to realize, you've got to recognize. There are some stakes you have to drive down deep into your heart and live as if it were true because it is. He says, he says this, that, uh, that you ought to know. But know this, and you see the next word, that. Now that may seem insignificant. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The word perilous meant violent or fierce, grievous, distressing, hard to bear. The only other time it was used in the, in the New Testament was Matthew chapter 8. This word was used was Matthew chapter 8, where it's used to describe a man possessed with several demons. Friend, do you think it's an accident that God handpicked a word that was used to describe a man possessed with several demons to describe what the last days are going to be like? That's not an accident. That's on purpose. It says perilous times shall come. The word times there means seasons or eras or epochs. has the idea of waves of time. It was also to describe a, a woman that was going through the pangs of labor. I remember we were having our first child and I was traveling for the Wilds Christian Camp at that time and we were in Kansas City and uh, she's from Kansas City, my wife is and her, and, uh, her parents uh, still live there and so we were going to have uh, our first child there and her contractions were two minutes apart. I called the doctor, he says, yep, come on in, it, it's time. And so I told Chris and I said, hey, the doctor said to come on in, it, it's time to go there. They, you know, the, those contractions are two minutes apart. And she says, what, we're not going to Chili's? Now, we've been like on our feet all day and working all day. We hadn't had time to eat. And she's heard all these horror stories of women at labor for 20 hours, you know, when she was really hungry. It says, no, we're not going to Chili's. <laughs> we're going to the hospital. Her dad comes walking down the stairs and she said, hey, Ron said that, called the doctor and the doctor said to come in because the contractions are two minutes apart. He says, what? We're not going to Chili's? I said, what's wrong with you people? No, we're not going to Chili's. We're going to the hospital. We get to the hospital. We sign in. They're wheeling her up in this wheelchair up to her room. She looks at the nurse and says, oh, I just want to let you know, I would like to have an epidural. I want to let you know it in advance. She says, honey, you're way past that. They rolled her in the room and 45 minutes later, we had our first child. I'm glad we didn't go to Chili's. I don't know. We might have got a gift card. I don't know. But that's what that word has, the idea of, uh, it, that the, there, there's an increasing uh, a number, uh, what he's saying in this text, there's an increasing number of waves of times or seasons or eras or epochs that are going to be distressing, they're going to be grievous, they're going to be dangerous, and they're going to be hard to bear. And then Paul goes into a classic discourse of the last days. He gives some 20-something characteristics of those living in the last days. But the first one summarizes all of them. Would you look at verse 2? It says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Boy, don't we see that today? Man, don't we see that today? There's a pastor, if you want to call him that, who had a book on the, on the New York Times bestselling list with a whole chapter dedicated to self-esteem. And this is what I'll try to teach you. Hey, you know why you have the problems you have? You know why you struggle with the things you struggle with? You don't have enough self-esteem. Hey, you haven't tapped that inner potential that is inside of you, and you don't have a high enough view of yourself, and that's why you have the problems that you have. And I don't mean to be unkind, but our problem is not that we don't have a high enough view of, of ourselves. Our problem is we have too high a view of ourselves. We don't need any more self-esteem. We need more God-esteem. 
We don't need a greater view of herself. We need a loftier vision of the great God of heaven. And it seemed like John had it right when he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. But this is the thread that runs throughout the fabric of the garment of the last days that men are lovers of their own selves. Just continue reading in verse 2. He calls them lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Verse 3, unloving. The word literally means without family love, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of, the, uh, of good. John Ashcroft was in office during uh, President Bush's uh, term. He waged war on child pornography. You know what? I, ca- I hope he caught every one of them. But it's unbelievable to me the heat that that man took for that position. You know, and I, you know why? We live in a country where men are despisers of those that are good. We live in a day where men call evil good and good evil. Verse 4, he calls them traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I'll tell you the exact reason why maybe some good people in this room or those watching online, why you won't get saved by the grace of God. Maybe God has convicted you and you know that you're a sinner on your way to hell, but you have just held God at arm's length and you've just been uh, resistant to trust Christ as Savior. And one of the reasons could be you love your sin more than you love God. You might love your Friday night parties or your drunkenness or your fornication, your immorality. You might love your pornography. Whatever it is, you love your sin more than you love God. And you know if God saves you, that he's going to change you. And you're not willing to give up your sin. And you love your sin more than you love God. You say, preacher, those are big words. Can you back them up? I don't have to. God already did. Jesus already did in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Then men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil and everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. I tell you, we live in a day where people are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Verse 5, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such people turn away. One only needs to turn on a religious TV station. You can see some guy slinging spit back for five rows, waving a prayer hanky, saying, if you send me 50 bucks, I'll send you the power of God. You've seen those programs. They say, brothers and sisters, if you just call the number at the bottom of the screen and sow me a seed uh, of a financial gift of 5,000, God will give you 50,000. I want to call the number and said, hey, why don't you sow me the seed of $5,000 and let God give you the 50? Oh yeah, they're not going to do that. You know what the fact is? Religious charlatans fill our land. And this is why we ought to be rooted and grounded in doctrine. Look at how Paul is describing the last days. That people are going to be slanderers without self-control. Don't we see that today? Despisers of good. And they're haughty. They're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, unloving. Man, it kind of sounds like the day we're living in. Are these the last days? I don't know, but it sounds like it. And this is how Paul begins this chapter. Timothy, look at how wicked the world is going to become. In fact, it's not going to get any better because in verse 13, it says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. He's saying, Timothy, look at how wicked the world is going to become. If you're going to make it in ministry, if you're going to have God's power in your life, know this and look at how wicked the world has become. Now, would you look at verse number 15? As you look at verse number 15, the Bible says, and what's the next word? 
that. There is a grammatical link from the that in verse 15 to the that in verse number one. It's the object of the verb to know. In other words, Paul is now introducing a second fact that Timothy needed to know that he needed to be aware of. In fact, you can take verse 15 and you could back it up to verse number one and read it this way. But this, no, that from childhood He says in verse 15, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And here's the very first reason why the word of God is so valuable in verse 15, because number one, it has an incredible power. The word has an incredible power. It says, Timothy, you have known from a child, from a child, the power that the Holy Scriptures have had in your life, that it was able to make you wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That The word able is the Greek word dudamus. We get our English word dynamite from that word. It's an explosion of spiritual power, of spiritual energy. He says, listen, you've known how the Scriptures, how the Gospel has changed your life and impacted you. And he's saying in verse 15, the Word has an incredible power. You realize that God's word can reach any man, can change any soul. Do you believe that God can save the biggest sinner in this county? Do you? He can. Many of you in the room, you're probably familiar with the name Al Capone. You're probably not familiar with the name George Mensick. He was a gangster. He was a mobster that worked for Capone. You name it, Mensick was involved in it. Murder, kidnapping, voter fraud. Imagine voter fraud in Chicago. I mean, you name it, he was involved in Iran liquor when it wasn't legal. He was gone at a wicked mobster party over a long weekend, parting hard with the mob. He came home on Monday morning, parked his car in front of a Chicago suburb home. He got out, walked to the front door, true story, pulled out a 38 revolver pistol, full well, planning to kill his Christian wife and his Christian daughter. He made his way into the house. He went up the stairs. He took a right-hand turn. He opened his daughter's bedroom door. He stepped in and he lowered the gun. But you know what he found? A 12-year-old girl doubled over her bed. And she was saying something over and over and over. You know what she was doing? Yeah, she was praying. You know what she was praying? Dear God, We don't know where my daddy's been. He's a wicked man. Dear God, would you save my daddy? Dear God, we don't know where he's been. He's a wicked man. Dear God, would you save my daddy? At that moment when Mensik heard the prayer of that little 12-year-old girl, his daughter, every verse of the Bible and the gospel they had ever shared with him, which had been many times, flowed into his heart like a rushing river. Conviction overwhelmed that old mobster, almost squeezing the gun out of his hand. He dropped it to the floor. He went down the stairs, got in his car, drove to the corner of 60th in California. That was the location at the time of Marquette Manor Baptist Church. And they're in the basement of that church on his knees with the pastor. Their gangster, their mobster, their murderer, George Mensick, trusted Christ. And it changed him. The scriptures and the power of the gospel, it changed him. So after he was saved and discipled, so overwhelmed of all of the sin that was on his account that God so freely forgave through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he felt like he had to make that news known to other men that they could have forgiveness of sin, that they could have a relationship with God and heaven as their home. 
Mensik started to preach. You know where his favorite place to preach was? Prison. It was over 30 men that he, not only that he led to Christ in prison, because there were literally hundreds of those, but of those hundreds that were saved that he led to Christ in prison, 30 of them, when they got out of prison, they studied and trained for the ministry and entered the ministry as preachers of the gospel. The state of Illinois was so thoroughly convinced that this wicked mobster had changed, they burned his police records. That just doesn't happen. You know what Capone used to do to guys that left his mob? permanently silence them by putting them in a box six feet under, if you know what I mean. Capone never went after Mensik's kids. Capone never went after Mensik's wife. In fact, Capone never touched George Mensik. You know why? Because even a wicked mobster like Al Capone could see the saving power of the gospel in the life of George Mensik. The word of God is quick and powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword piercing even in the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It goes right down to our most vital organ straight to our heart. It's a, the Bible says that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Listen, when you read this book, this book reads you. And it's more relevant than tomorrow's newspapers. Acts 19, 20, so mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. Don't you love that? God's word prevails. The most quoted prophet from the Old Testament is Isaiah. He said, the word of the Lord, that shall stand forever. The word stands on a passive Hebrew verb. It's an active one. It literally means it will rise up. The same prophet said, the word will not return void to the purpose to which it is sent. The very last word in the, in the Greek, in the book of Acts, is the word unhindered. The Bible says Paul would go preaching, no man forbidding him. It means unhindered. It appears at several places at the key points of the book of Acts. And you know what God's saying to us this morning? When you read this book every day without miss, when you memorize it every day without miss, when you meditate on it every day without miss, and you ingest the word of God into the bloodstream of your spiritual life, this book will rise up. It will proactively seek out the mission to which God is sending it and this book has the power to change your life. Sir, are you letting this book impact you every day? Ma'am, are you letting this book impact you every day? When was the last time you had such a rich time just alone with God in his word? You looked up at a clock and maybe 45 minutes or an hour had gone by. Dads, when was the last time your family caught you having devotions? Husbands, when was the last time you said, hey, sweetheart, to your wife, hey, would you look at this verse? God really spoke to me today out of this text. Maybe it's been days or weeks or months since you had a rich time alone with him in this book. And it has an incredible power. It could change your life, your kid's life. It could change your marriage. God can change you. This book has an incredible power. Listen, if you're here today and maybe you can identify with George Metzik and maybe you feel like I've done so many wicked things, there is no way that God can forgive me. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And you know what that means? I don't care what you did 15 years ago. I don't care what you did 15 minutes ago. God can forgive you this morning.
And he could save you and he could wash you. He could brush you off and make you a new creature. And he could change your life as a nine-year-old boy. I trusted Christ. And I tasted the fruit of this gospel that, and, and the power of the scriptures that Timothy did from a childhood. And I'm telling you, it could change you this morning. Don't run from Christ, man. Run to him this morning. Man, would you trust him? Give him your heart and life. Depend on what he did on the cross. Was payment good enough for you to wash your sins away? Would you trust the Savior of the world? He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. You know, first of all, the reason the Word of God is so powerful, it has an incredible, or the Word of God is so valuable, it has an incredible power. But would you look at verse 16, a verse that's very familiar to a lot of us. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It has an incredible power, amazing power. Number two, it has an incredible profit. God's Word is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Have you ever decided, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year? And he had a great time in Genesis. You had a great time in Exodus. And then you died a slow death in Leviticus. Oh, that's happening to you too, huh? You know, it says all scripture. It's given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. It came from him. And it's profitable. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, there is one God in heaven and you're not him. Aren't you glad for that? There's one God in heaven and you're not him. That God spoke. And what he says matters. We should have a daily intake of that, but all scripture is profitable. And notice that it's profitable for four benefits. How many of you, you use Google Maps, Apple Maps, or a GPS in your vehicle? Can I see your hand? Okay, there's a lot of you. I tell you, that's one of the greatest things uh, that's been invented, especially for someone uh, you know, like, like me that travels all over the country. Does your, does your map or navigation ever say, recalculating? recalculating turn left i can't it's like michigan you know i want to take that throw it out the window and say recalculate that you know what you know for but for the most part you know our gps's you know they really do uh tell us uh the road to get on how to get to our destination think of the word of god as a road map or a gps or like Google Maps or, or Apple Maps, it's profitable for four benefits. Look at verse 16. The Bible says that it's profitable for doctrine. You know what doctrine is? That's like Apple Maps or Google Maps. It shows you the right road to get on. You know what? You never have to worry about what's wrong or right. God will always show you. You say, preacher, what happens if I'm dealing with something not expressly stated in Scripture? Well, God has given His truth in principle form. And the Spirit of God will guide you into all truth. And God will take the principles and, and the Word and the Scripture and He'll apply it to your heart and you'll get the right answer. We had to be rooted and grounded in doctrine. I tell you, we could talk about where England was. 200 years ago, England was the lighthouse of the world. Today, the average man on the street of England, they hate God. How did they get there? They didn't have a blowout overnight. They delivered their faith over brick by brick with doctrine. Doctrine always shows us the right road to get on. But it says it is profitable for doctrine, profitable for reproof. When Paul used this word, everybody in the building knew what he meant. It was a lawyer's term in the first century. It meant to prove or to convict or to present guilty. It's almost like you walk in, you open up the Bible, you're walking into God's courtroom, and you are the defendant. The Spirit of God is the prosecuting attorney. He's going to build an airtight case presenting you guilty before God the Father. You know what reproof is? It shows you when you got off the right road. 
And one of the greatest things God can ever do for us is to convict us when we've sinned. It's profitable for doctrine. Here's the right road, reproof. Hey, you got off the right road. But isn't it great? It just doesn't stop there. It says that it's profitable for correction. You know what that says? Hey, here's how to get back on the right road. And then the scripture says it is profitable for instruction and righteousness. That's how to stay in the right road and not make the same wrong turn again. When you have God's word in your life every day, that doctrine, man, it puts you on the right road. When you sin, you get off that road. He convicts us immediately. He, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and he does that because he loves us. And the word says, hey, here's how to get back on the right road. Here's how to stay in the right road. And man, it is profitable. Has amazing power, has an incredible profit. But look at verse 17. Tells us in verse 17, that the man of God, that's a hint of clause in the Greek, it's used to express purpose. And so Paul is saying, God gave you his word so that for this reason, that the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word thoroughly equipped, again, it was a word that everybody knew what Paul was saying. In the first century, it was used of a boat that was completely outfitted for a seagoing voyage. They had, all, uh, they had all the food they needed, all the water for the trip. They actually had extra wood and pitch and tar and nails to rebuild part of the ship in case they got in a shipwreck and they could rebuild part of the ship and get going again on the open sea. In other words, the boat was thoroughly equipped. It had everything it needed and even some things they hoped they would never have to use. You know what Paul's saying in verse 17? God's word is not all you need. It's more than enough. In verse 17, the third reason you see is it has an amazing purpose. Do you see the heart of God in verse 17? God doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to have freedom and victory and power. And he's given us this book so that we could be mature and we could be thoroughly equipped and had everything that we would ever need to walk out these doors and impact another generation for Jesus Christ. Man, if you just look at the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts, man, you missed it. God reveals himself to us through this book. It has an incredible power. It could change your life. It has an amazing prophet. It has a wonderful purpose. This year, as you start a, a calendar year for schooling, would you just take another step in your relationship with this book? As a mom and dad, maybe, would you just take another step and wherever you are in relation with God's word, would you just take another step with him and his word? And would you just let him have his way? Maybe that's reading it every day. Maybe that's doing a book study. Maybe reading it chronologically, which is amazing if you've never done that. Maybe it's a character study. Maybe you're going to trace a doctrine in a systematic way throughout the scripture. But you know what, man? Stop just reading your little two verses for the day. Get on the scuba gear. Get out of the boat and get down to the depths and mine out the truths of God's word. This book has the power to change your life. It's incredible power, a prophet and purpose. Years ago, the great statesman of our country, Aaron Burr, shared no spiritual heritage with the rest of his family. His grandfather was Jonathan Edwards. Aaron Burr was lost. He did not know the Lord. His roommate, who was a Christian, invited him to go to a revival meeting in which he obliged that invitation. 
Aaron Burr sat in that revival meeting. The pastor preached a very simple gospel message and conviction overwhelmed Aaron Burr. He knew that he was lost. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was on his way to hell. And, and the pastor invited, if you need to be saved by the grace of God, would you stand to your feet and come to the front? Immediately, Aaron Burr stood to his feet. He stepped out into the aisle and his friend thought, this is wonderful, Aaron's going to get saved. But instead of coming to the front, Aaron Bird stepped to the back of the church, went out of the church, went around the backside of that small Pennsylvania country church. He looked up at the Pennsylvania sky and he says, God, leave me alone. Many times, we read these words written in Aaron Burr's journal, written in his own hand. God never spoke to me again. Oh, Christian, don't do that. But would you have the spirit of Samuel where you would say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Later, God says, Samuel, you speak, and I'll listen because Samuel became a great man of prayer. Where are you with the Lord in this book this morning? Would you just take another step? Would you just, maybe God's been dealing with you about an issue, stop chafing in resistance, and would you just yield to what he's dealing with you about in this book? It has the power to change you. There's a credible prophet and a supernatural purpose and the wonderful word of God. Would you stand quietly as we pray? Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for this text of Scripture. And Lord, we have a treasure in our hands and in our laps. But Lord, so many times we fail to recognize it as such. And we just kind of go our days. Father, would you just convict us to be a greater, better student of your word? Lord, we need you. We're so self-dependent. But God, would you help us to be dependent upon you? His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder if you're here today and, and maybe you could identify with this lost man, George Mensick, this gangster. Maybe even you're listening online and maybe there's just a, a nitty of things that you have uh, disobeyed God with and maybe there's this huge list that you've just egregiously broken God's law over and over and over again and and maybe you just feel like, man, there's no way God could ever forgive me. And maybe today you've, you realize the truth of God's word, that God can cleanse you from all sin. He can forgive you. Maybe you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here just trying to investigate who Jesus is. And you're in a great place to do that. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, preacher? God's dealing with me. And you know what? If I were to die right now, I'm not sure I'm on my way to heaven. I'm concerned about that preacher would would you just pray for me if that's you would you just lift up your hand today and his heads are bowed and eyes are closed i'm not sure i'm on my way to heaven i'm concerned about that would you just pray for me today and just include me in a prayer as you close just put it up and put it right back down would you just pray for me i wonder if you're a christian here today and maybe you need to take another step with this book maybe it's been a while since you've had some rich times alone with god and his word Incredible power, profit, and a purpose. Maybe this morning you would just let God change you. That you would just make a decision today that this year you're going to take another step with Him and His Word. Maybe an area of, of life that you've been a little bit resistant. 
And maybe you would just yield to that. I don't know what it is, and, but you and the Lord do. I'm just going to invite our, our, our pianist to, to begin playing. And, and maybe God spoke to you. You just talk to the Lord right now in the stillness of this moment. Would you tell him that you need him, that you love him? Maybe you would take another step in your relationship with this book.